I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews one more time, chapter 13, and that last section. That will be Hebrews 13, 10 through 25, today wrapping up what has been an eight and a half month journey uh, through the book of Hebrews. Uh, Your sermon notes are in your bulletin. That will be a, a help to you, I'm confident. Now, as you, as you head that direction, I'd like to reflect with you on a couple things to help us head to the text. Uh, you, you know, of course, the, the significance of the day and the year for us as a congregation, 50 years, uh, marking God's hand, uh, seeing this church through times when things went well, and in the 50 years of any church, there are times when things have not gone well. There have been high spots and there have been low spots when at times people wondered if we would make it. Yes, I understand the ups and downs of church life. Of course, this weekend, uh, our whole country and the world is marking 20 years of remembering 9-11 yesterday uh, and all the events that changed the world and our country. And if you were alive, then uh, changed our lives for good. definitely marked us. There are other moments in world history that mark change and remind us, they remind us that sometimes we put our hope in the wrong things. We think things will stay the same forever and they don't. Whether it's a person who lives and then dies, they've never done that before, or an institution that rises and falls, we get ourselves kind of rocked when things move, okay? Well, uh, August 26th, 410, the world changed. Uh, Some could see it coming, but that was the day when what you would call the unthinkable happened. Uh, After 900 years of security, the city of Rome was invaded. The Roman Empire, of course, about 900 years old. It was old, it was old. And 900 years of security, and a city falls. Amazing. Awful if you live there. But it was the shaking of an empire. Soon to crumble, you you understand, of course, from world history, Rome as an empire was soon to fade. It would take another generation for the lights to go out, really. Um, but, But that year, 410, when the city was sacked for the first time, my goodness, it was the beginning of an end. It was, a, it was a cataclysmic event. The world was never the same. Jerome, who was the guy who translated the Bible into Latin, was in Palestine at the time. And as news traveled to him eventually about Rome, he said this, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? Isn't that interesting? If Rome can perish, what can be safe? 900 years, our country 245 If Rome can perish, what can be saved? At the same time, North Africa, Augustine, uh, one of the greatest theologians of all time, was 55 years old. And uh, watching this from a distance, 20 years later, his own city, uh, uh, invasion taking place as the world changed again. I'm just saying, sometimes we put our hope in, in, in the wrong things. And in our text today, we're going to see a phrase I've used as my title today, a description of people who seek something different. We seek an enduring city. Our hope is somewhere else. This text is a reminder of that. Don't put your hope in the wrong thing. 
We'll, we'll talk about that today. Uh, that can be an institution. It can be a church. It can be a person. Don't put your hope in the wrong thing. Institutions fall. As we'll talk about, people fall. Don't put your hope in the wrong thing. We seek an enduring city. I'd like to pray for us, and we'll jump into today's text. Father, thank you so much that we get to open the Word of God together as a church family in this uh, most important of acts for us, to gather together week after week after week around an open Bible with our hearts turned to you, saying, oh, Father, would you teach us? Spirit of God, come, find those places where, where we are out of step with you, and break up the hard ground in our own hearts and turn us to you. So we give you this time, we give you ourselves as, as active listeners, active worshipers, not just passive sitting here, but actively engaging the text by the work of the Spirit of God. Help us with this, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You glance at your sermon notes, you see some idea of, of where we've been. I give you a couple of notes of review and so on, looking back with you. But I would like to head toward that section called text and context and remember with you uh, what we're going to do today. Now, our text proper is verses 10 through 25 of Hebrews 13. In a moment, we'll begin our reading at verse 7. But, but, but the broader context, I want you to remember with me. As I mentioned, eight and a half months we've been at this, which is significant to me, because if you think about the last eight and a half months in our country and world, uh, anxiety and fear and upheaval and division and rancor and threat and all manner of things, what an amazing time for us week after week to hear the call of Scripture to turn our eyes to Christ. This has been so good for us, and I have been grateful week after week with everything going on. We can say, okay, back, eyes back here, eyes back here to the text and to God himself. This has been a good thing for us. Now, Hebrews, of course, begins with that lifting up of Jesus right out of the chute. The writer begins by saying, look at Christ, greater than all the angels, a greater name, a greater position. He is the one who made them. So lifting up Christ, and then in the chapters that follow, Christ as the greater prophet than Moses, Christ as the greater priest than the Levitical priest. In fact, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as we spoke about. Christ the greater king, greater than King David, the greater sacrifice for sin, his blood covering once and for all, all of our sin. Isn't that amazing? By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By that one offering, the greater sacrifice, uh, the greater tabernacle into which that sacrifice was presented. Not a tabernacle here on earth, but the very presence of God himself. And then the writer takes us to men and women of faith and gives us a long list of people who have walked this road before us, not perfectly, oh, not perfectly. But at key moments in their life, they held on to the promise of God. See? So the hall of faith. Then, of course, chapter 12, run. The writer says, run with endurance. Not run away, run to him. Run with endurance the race set before you, holding on to Christ, the author and perfecter, finisher of our faith. And so we almost catch up here then. So in this last chapter, it covers a lot of different things. And I am looking then under the heading, we seek an enduring city. And I'm suggesting to us under that heading, four characteristics of those 
who do that, who seek an enduring city, and the invitation for all of us to join them. So I want to hear then with you the word of God, and I'm going to begin Hebrews 13, verse 7, and then we'll pick up our comments specifically at verse 10. So we read God's word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. God's word. Now, using verse 14 as I think an appropriate heading, there, there, there is a unity in this text rather than a randomness. Okay? I think the writer is not just sitting back with a cup of coffee throwing ideas around. I think he's focused and has purpose and intent. And I, I, I see verse 14, of course, a continuation of, of a previous text that we'll talk about in a minute. But it's a theme that continues. So four characteristics, then, of those who seek an enduring city. Verses 10 to 14, I put under the heading of, we embrace the gospel of a suffering Savior. I think that's the first thing we do if we are going to be those who seek an enduring city. 
we, we embrace the gospel of a suffering savior. And I mentioned here, this is the glory of the gospel of a crucified savior, even here in verses 10 to 14. I wanna think with you about this. Verses 10 to 14, this little paragraph takes us right into the Old Testament and then draws us to the work of Christ and, and takes us right to today, okay? It does a whole lot in a very short period of time. And here's, here's the idea, all right? Speaking of altars and sacrifices and so on, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, if you study the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular, you discover that there are certain sacrifices that were intended, once sacrificed, to be dinner for certain people, right? So sometimes it was just like the parking lot right now. They're out there cooking ribs, and you, could, you knew, man, it smells like Tony Roma's down, down, downwind. You say, this is going to be a good day. Well, so some sacrifices were intended to be eaten, but not all of them. In particular, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the sacrifices brought that day were not to be eaten because they were the, the sacrifices that were symbolically tainted by all the sins of the people. And so they, once sacrificed, would be taken outside the camp and burned completely. Now you remember, Day of Atonement was the day when the high priest would go into, back in the tabernacle, you go back to those days, we've, we've preached on that in going through Hebrews, the Old Testament tabernacle, we had a picture of it and so on. That little place called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So you've got a picture. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood on what was called the mercy seat. That was the top of that Ark of the Covenant. And it was like right there in the very presence of God. That was the idea. And, and in doing that act, he was covering the sins of the people for the next year, okay? That's, that was the idea. So Yom Kippur then, as now, begins in the evening and concludes the next evening. By the way, it starts this week. Wednesday evening is the beginning of Yom Kippur, and it concludes Thursday evening, and then, as now, it concludes with the, the blowing of a shofar. Interesting, the trump shall resound. Well, the blowing of the trumpet is what happens right after uh, atonement, is, is symbolized. Now, may I just say, please get this. This is, this is understanding the Bible, okay? Uh, Jesus dying on the cross was the ultimate day of atonement, the ultimate Yom Kippur toward which all the days of atonement in the past looked, okay? Sometimes people mistakenly uh, look at the Bible and say, there's certain things we just don't do anymore. Sometimes even today's Christians do that because they don't understand how the Bible works. They say, well, there's stuff in the Old Testament, we just don't do that. Okay, why not? Did we just forget that day? Well, no, because Christ fulfilled all those things. All of those days of atonement before were looking to the ultimate day of atonement. So Christ came, one final day of atonement when all sin was covered for all time. So that's why we don't need to do it again, is it's done. So Christ was looking ahead. Similarly, boy, rough day. I know, it's okay. It's all right. I know, we're friends, she and I. Yeah, oh dear, Bia. We'll talk later. Oh, honey. Yeah. So, um, yes, Old Testament pictures were looking ahead to Jesus. It's so important we understand this. So 
by not celebrating the Day of Atonement this week, it isn't that we're ignoring the Old Testament. It's we're saying Christ has come, and he's done it. Sin has been atoned for once and for all when Jesus died on the cross. For by one offering, we read in Hebrews 10, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Christ was looking forward to this. Now, the, the animal sacrifice then, to pick up the text again on the Day of Atonement, were taken outside the camp and burned, symbolically completely tainted with sin. So Christ, the perfect one, suffered outside the gate, tainted by our sin. Do you, you see the travesty of this? The perfect one, bearing my sin and yours to the cross. He paid our sin. He paid our debt. He did. He suffered outside the gate. Now, the writer is taking us from the Old Testament. Then in verse 12, so Jesus also. So he's stepping from Old Testament to New Testament. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate to sanctify people through his blood. And then he continues, therefore. Do you see this? There's a a, a continual progression of thought. Therefore, what? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Watch this. For these connecting words. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So verse 13 then, because Christ suffered outside the camp, we are called then to go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured as he suffered and died. He died a criminal's death. And the writer here is saying, let's, go, let's be with him by faith, trusting him as our savior. And yes, let's bear the reproach that was his because we have no lasting city here. Listen, our world, this world is not our home. We seek a city that is to come, a different one. More on that in a minute. Uh, now, this idea of outside the camp all right, it's, it's very interesting to think about. You can go back to the book of Genesis and think of the inside and outside paradigm. For example, Adam and Eve were placed by God in the Garden of Eden. When sin entered the world, as they disobeyed God, they were sent, what is it? Outside, they, to the east, outside the east of Eden, and the place was closed off again. What was, what was inside? Well, it was intended to be a place of fellowship with God till they blew it, a place of oneness with God, harmony and shalom, was there in the presence of God. Outside, what is it? It's a place of danger. It's a place where the consequences of sin are rife. Outside, they're thrust out into this dangerous world. So animal sacrifice is tainted by sin. Out, outside, outside. So Christ suffered. Where is it? Outside. We're called to go out into that world of danger, into that world where there's, there's threat that's real. That's where Christ was. That's where Christ suffered, was outside, I think there's a symbolism here that's a call to the people of God. And if I can just flesh that out just a little bit, um, I, I think it's inherent in the text. Let's go to him outside the camp. Let's go out there with him and bear the reproach he endured. Um, l- listen, it's, it's, it's a going out from that place of security inside to a place of danger on purpose. What is this about? What is this about? Taking the gospel to the world is not a safe venture. Okay? You with me on this? Taking the gospel to the world, whether it's your community and there's reproach for the name of Christ or to another country or another place where there's a physical danger. It's not always physical danger. Sometimes it is. 
This is, this is joining Christ outside the camp. Now, we seem to have, we have inverted values compared to the men and women of faith who have gone before us. I'm just going to call it out. I'm going to put myself together with all of us. Here in America, we have switched some gospel values that our predecessors in faith did not share. Here's what I mean. In our generation, for us here living now, we rank as core values safety, security, and temporary happiness pretty high. And the idea that you would embrace danger for the cause of Christ is below that. That makes sense? We, we ask, oh, why, would you, why would you go there? Or why would you do that? Now, people before us saw the cause of Christ in taking the gospel to the nations as, as worth the risk, even when it was dangerous. Some examples, and just a couple. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf and the Moravians. If you've ever studied some of the histories of missions, then you know that the Moravian group not only believed in praying like you like like a lot. I think they had like a hundred year prayer meeting where somebody from their really honestly somebody from their group was praying twenty four hours a day, one person after another. Hundred years. Can you imagine? We're going to do that again now. From those prayer meetings came the sending of their best to other parts of the world that did not have gospel witness. And so, on numerous occasions, they sent young people to areas, islands, where there was no gospel witness, knowing, knowing there were diseases there that would likely take their life, and typically it did. So they sent their young people with their, with their possessions packed in a very unique suitcase shaped like their casket, because it was. So before you go, you build a casket for you and put your stuff inside. Isn't that a handy suitcase? Most of them needed it for what it was intended. Two or three years, and the jungle stuff, the diseases against which they had no immunity, took their lives, but they went, see, for the cause of Christ. Some of them, wanting to reach people who were enslaved on those islands, sold themselves into slavery because that was the only way to reach them. I'll join you as a slave to tell you of one who will set you free. And they went, and as they died, the people back home, are you ready? Sent more. Well, for goodness sakes, it's dangerous out there. Go anyway. I'm saying they had a greater value on sending in the cause of Christ than safety and security. Now, uh, the, the uh, little uh, curved area of Africa, people call it the armpit sometimes. You'd have to look at it on a map, you'd know. It's often called the white man's graveyard. How come? So many Europeans went there and died, just like the other story. They went there and died knowing they were likely to die because they had no immunity to the diseases that were there. They didn't all die. Many of them did. So it was often called the white man's graveyard in the history of missions. And as they died, (laughs) others went. Extremely unsafe. And they went because they saw the cause of Christ as of greater, greater worth than their own temporary security. Here we have no, we have no, we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. So of course I'll go. Another interesting story, uh, John Patton, P-A-T-O-N, uh, who was a 
who was lining up to be a missionary to what was called at the time New Hebrides, uh, Vanuatu today, back at, the, back at the time, inhabited by cannibals. No, really. Like when you pack, you bring your own bottle of barbecue sauce because that's probably what was going to happen to you. So, so dear friends, maybe like us, said to John as he prepared to go and his wife, why would you go? There are cannibals there and they'll eat you. I'm going to paraphrase his answer. Well, if I stay here and live long enough, the worms will eat me. So what difference does it make how I spend my life? If the worms eat me or the cannibals, at least they'll hear about Jesus. That's my paraphrase of what he said. I'm going to get eaten by something. Why not invest my life in the cause of Christ, for goodness sakes? And he went. And his wife, they had a child. And John dug both of their graves, his wife and his child. Dug to your own graves with a shovel in his own hands. And he stayed through great danger and cost, believing that the gospel was worth it. Very interesting. What were they thinking? Well, they were thinking that the cause of Christ was more important than their own safety and security. Crazy, huh? Well, Embracing the gospel of a suffering Savior may not call you to go to a place where somebody may eat you. But you know, in the history of missions, even now, currently, if you look at the world, there's a a section of the world, a swath across North Africa and into Asia, China, India, parts of India, that's called the 1040 window. It's a place where where there's a greatest percentage of people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. And you know what? It's very dangerous to go there. It cost you a lot. Might take your life. Interesting, huh? 1040 window. Uh, most recently, this is not a political comment, but it's something to think about. As we evacuated people or sought to evacuate people from Afghanistan, there were those who were making a call to make sure that all the Christians got out. Oh, but wait. Would that have been a good thing? Think carefully about this. Think, think Great Commission for a minute. Load the airplanes with all the Christians, and who's left? Well, a country with no gospel witness. These are things to wrestle with. See, wrestle with this. I'm not saying, well, you, you stay, because I'm sitting in the United States of America, all fat and happy. But be careful as you say, oh, well, of course they should all stay. Well, hmm. But we should be thinking globally like this. So I think that's, that's the fleshing out of this text. Christ suffered outside the camp. He paid for the sin of, 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 of all of us and all those who will ever be born again. He suffered outside the camp to sanctify people through his blood. Therefore, let's go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Again, let's go to that place of danger. Here, here we have no lasting city. I put on your sermon notes here a whole number of things I think I've covered. Perhaps our world full of false values has elevated safety to a core value. And I say the church isn't far behind. Um, I, I cringe a bit at that as a core value. I'm not saying recklessness is a value. I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. I'm simply saying I don't know that safety should be a core value. Otherwise, you'd stay home, including right now. You wouldn't be here. A drunk driver might hit you on the way to church. 
So you chose some type of danger just to come today. Bless you. Verses 15 to 16, a second characteristic of those who seek an enduring city. I put it under the heading of we respond to Christ's gospel with costly obedience. I want you to see how these verses are connected. So verse 15 says, through him then, or your text might say, through him therefore. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a tie-in with what precedes that's intended by the writer. Whatever your translation, either then or therefore, is probably there. Through him then, through him therefore, because of this, let us continually, how often? Continually, as we're in this world where we're bearing his reproach, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of, of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So as we're doing what is what has been spoken of already as we're going outside the camp and joining him, bearing his reproach into a, a pain-filled and, and difficult world, through him then let us therefore continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, rather offer to him a sacrifice of praise. And secondly, next verse, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Don't hold, the, don't hold on to your stuff, man, like, like it's forever. We hang on to our stuff. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Um, I, I put here on your sermon notes, not only we praise God, we are to praise God even when it hurts, though our pain and discomfort threshold is very low, but we are called here to value people more than our stuff. People will last. Stuff won't. I Again, I was to think about world missions with you for a moment uh, this week, uh, earlier, I was in a small group of, of uh, pastors for lunch. Pastor Tyler was presenting the work that he and Karen will be headed into uh, and are already embracing, but where they're headed. And um, after that was done, one of the older pastors uh, was talking to me quietly on the side, and he said, you know, I've got some friends who are seeking to raise support to do missions, and it's been five years. And I hope these guys that you've got you know, are aware that this business is hard. And I, you know, right away thought, it's not going to be five years. But I, I, you know, I don't know the the circumstances or the people that he was referring to, but I did think this, five years, that is a, that is a crime. Now, other stuff may be going on, but can you imagine in one of the richest countries of the world, somebody's seeking to go for the cause of Christ somewhere, Five years later, I mean, something's wrong here. Something's wrong with that picture. How can that be? How can it be? Now, I, I just, I just, I, I, I don't, I don't understand. How could it be that in one of the richest countries in the world that we couldn't figure out in five years how to send somebody like that where God is calling them? I, I don't get it. Let it not be among us. No, verse, verse, this, now see, these are all connected. All these are connected verses, verses 15 and 16. We respond to Christ's gospel, that taking, uh, the, the, going outside the camp with Christ and, and bearing the reproach that he endured. This is a part of that. Uh, offering to him a sacrifice of praise to God, no matter what. And the next verse, the writer says, don't neglect to do good and share what you have. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. NAS, I think. So we live out the gospel 
of a suffering savior. We respond to the gospel with costly obedience. Third, 17 to 19, we live out the gospel within the church family. I'd like you to think about the relational elements here. It's all part of this idea of seeking an enduring city. So the writer says in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let us do this with, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I'll stop there for a second, just verse 17. Now he's referenced leaders in verse seven, perhaps those who have come before, maybe planted the church, some past tense verbs and so on there that would perhaps look backward. Verse 17, I think, is looking more at the current group of leaders. This is not a this is not a, a, an unqualified text, meaning obey your leaders and submit to them no matter what they tell you. Now that's, that doesn't fit with the whole of Scripture, and we could get into a whole study of that. But it does speak of the posture of the hearts of God's people to, to honor and respect the leaders God has given. Sunset does pretty well at this. By the way, thank you for that. I don't take it for granted. Not only me and the other rest of the staff. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It's a call to leaders then to do a couple things. Well, they're says they're keeping watch over your souls, which I find is a terrifying phrase. I don't take that lightly. Holy cow, man. That's, that's kind of right at the edge of scary. Accountable to God? Yeah, they'll give an account. It says that. They keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Not an account to the congregation at an annual meeting, but a much higher court. They'll have to give account to God for leadership. Holy smoke, man. Wow. That's sobering to any who lead. Accountability to God. Now, I think it goes both ways. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That's speaking to the people led. Not only the first line, but this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you, to those led. So a couple of things then. If you look at my notes, how I, how I work this through, those who lead should indeed lead like Christ They are to keep watch over souls, soul care, and will answer to God for how they do that, indeed. And those who are led should respond to leaders as to Christ and will also answer to God. So there's accountability in the pulpit and accountability in your chair. You'll answer to God too. So it kind of goes both ways. Further, if I may say, I have a yes and a no paragraph. Please pay attention to these. So yes, church messes can come from leaders. They can also come from those led. Been around long enough, got all the t-shirts. Okay, I know, a lot of church, sometimes church messes come from leaders. Sometimes leaders fail to lead like Jesus. And sometimes those led fail to honor God-given leadership. It goes both ways, often. Stories of leaders who mess up make the news. Stories of leaders who refuse, or people who refuse to be led rarely make the news. Is that fair? No, but it is the way it is. If a leader does something stupid, makes the newspaper. If a congregation refuses to follow God-given leaders, people pat them on the back and say, overthrow the authorities. <laughs> that tends to be the way it is. Now get their heads, let them eat cake. You know how that goes. Oh, church messes. Now, my no paragraph, no, church messes do not negate biblical commands on how we treat each other. And I say, praise God, he continues to build and use the church despite the regular messes that have been made down through the centuries. Indeed, um, I find myself with you deeply grieved when I hear stories of church fights and struggles and leadership failures. 
uh, deconversions, sometimes high-profile people that make the news, people who walk away from faith, some cases from the pulpit, very saddened by such things. And yet, please, please get this. This is maybe a different take on it. It also gives me great joy, not that it's not my name in the paper, that isn't it, but joy in the, in the awareness that even that will not derail God's plan for the church. See, that's what gives me joy. It isn't the mess. It's the awareness that through it all, what Jesus said, I will build my church, he meant, and he will. He will continue to, despite whatever mess takes place, however high profile, he will still build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So yes, I'm saddened with anybody else when these things happen and they will happen again. But my, but my, my, my trust in Christ as Lord of the church and my confidence in the church as his body is not shaken. He'll still do it. He will. Now, Verses 18 and 19, the writer, under the same heading, says, pray for us. We're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring that you act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this. To do what? To pray. To pray. Please pray more. That's what he says. I pray more. I I urge you to pray more earnestly for us in this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Um, Pray for us. This is a, a statement from leaders, perhaps the apostolic group. But certainly the writer identifying himself with this group of leaders as the writers or people standing together in leadership of the early church, they say, pray for us. Our conscience is clear, but please pray for us more than you do. That's verse 19. Um, I, I, I get that phrase, take that phrase, not for myself. I didn't make it up. I, I take it from Bill Cross, who is now with the Lord, one of our elders, one of the elders here when I came, a man that I heard preach for the first time when I think I was in junior high, maybe younger, I've always I've known him that long, um, but a, a fiery preacher calling people to salvation, and then to be able to serve with him years later. My goodness sakes, what a privilege. And how many times did Bill Cross say that? If he said anything, he said that, that I'll remember forever. Pray for me more than you do. Pray for me more than you do. He just said it all the time. Pray for me more than you do. Pray for us more than you do. And we met regularly for prayer along with the rest of our elders and so on. We, we prayed. We did. He practiced it. In fact, the last thing he and I did together was pray. It's true. Um, we had walked together for quite a while here. And I remember Bill, as his body failed, his spirit and his mind were clear. Um, I saw him just a day or so before he died. And he and I both knew um, that, that, that that's where we were. And um, uh, I was heading out of town, and I said, oh, Bill, I'm thinking of not going. He's going, are you kidding? Go. Really, go. And so we talked for a bit, and I, I began a prayer to pray for him. And I couldn't finish. He finished the prayer. Imagine. Uh, Thank you, Bill. Thank you. I think 24 hours later, he was with the Lord. No, this kind of verse just brings to mind voices. See, Hebrews 11, voices from the past, men and women who've been faithful to the Lord all the way through. And he, he was one who would say, pray, pray for us. Pray more than you do. 
Pray more than you do. So we live out the gospel within a church family. Is it messy sometimes? Oh, sure. Look around the room and up front. Sinners, all of us. You think we're not going to do something stupid once in a while? Oh, just give us time. We're going to do something stupid again. Just, just stick around long enough. I know. It's kind of the way church life works. And every time somebody does something stupid, there's, you know, there's blood on the floor and it's awful and, and God builds his church. And, and may I say this? Will there be another 50 years of Sunset Bible Church? I'd say this. I only want that if the church is faithful to the Lord. Churches rise and fall, and I would rather see this church close its doors someday than to fail to preach the gospel. So I hope that whenever, if there would ever be a day when that was at stake, that whoever the last people are before they turn the lights out would say, you know what? If we're not going to preach the word of God, we're not going to preach the gospel, shut her down. There'll be another church somewhere that will and sell the whole place off and say glory to God for however many years. The name of the church is not the most important thing or the name of any pastor who ever serves here, right? It's the name of Christ that matters no matter what. His name should be remembered. His name should be on the wall. His name should be on the name of any building, uh, any chair, any <laughs> the name of Christ. Let him be remembered. Well, I think about that. Verses 20 to 25 are a benediction and kind of wrap it together. We live the gospel together before the throne of God or before God's throne as we sang, of course, earlier today. Verses 20 to 21, I learned as a child not knowing I was memorizing scripture, but because the pastor who was uh, the leader of the little church my wife and I both attended at the time used two benedictions mainly, Jude 24 and 25 and Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. And I memorized them because he, in a little more of a formal setting, every day would, would give a benediction. I thought it was a cool little poem he wrote. I thought, man, it sounds good. And years later, as a junior higher, when I started reading the Bible, I went, huh, here I thought he made that up. Who knew? He's quoting the Bible. Weird. And so I would hear Jude 24 and 25, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and honor, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And then this, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Old King James, trying. Working in you that which is well-pleasing, I think it says, in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom belong, yes, glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Who's the great shepherd? Christ. Don't look at your pastor. Don't look at any of your pastors. Look beyond any of us to Christ. Okay? He's the great shepherd. He's the only savior. May God equip you with everything good to do his will. Yes. May you be well-pleasing in his sight. Yes. These are wonderful prayers. I, I, I say this. The final comments, I'll, I'll, I've commented on it as we begin our study in Hebrews. Uh, Italy and Timothy and some of those, I'll leave my comments for that, not minimizing them in any way. But I want to summarize with this, those last two comments, responding to God's word. The book of Hebrews points us to Christ. And in this day of fear and anxiety and drug abuse and alcohol abuse, so many things people do to cope, okay? I understand. The greatest thing we can do is to point to Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 1, fixing our eyes on Jesus, that is the most important thing we can do, and that's the big message of this book. 
We've been doing it the last eight and a half months with God's help, and we still need to continue until God calls us home. Fixing our eyes on Christ. It's urgent. This is urgent for you. And then that final one, I just ask you to think about this. Places where maybe your core values are different from gospel values. Um, Have we elevated safety, security, peace, or temporary happiness? Have we elevated those to core values? And if so, we're wrong. We're just wrong. Not saying they're unimportant, but core values? No, gospel values are core values. God's values are core values. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, including our community, these are core values. We, We flip it upside down to our own peril. Well, these are things I'd like to think about with you more as God gives us time and opportunity. Next week, we're going to think just one Sunday sermon, just that one turnaround. We're going to look at Christ and the church in Ephesians 3. The week after that, we will begin a multi-month study through the book of Isaiah. It's going to be so fun. I am so excited. Man, can hardly wait to get going. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, thank you so much for these past eight months or so that we have worked our way through Hebrews. Thank you for the writer, the audience, original audience, and how the Spirit of God uses his word. Oh, Father, you have been so good to us. I pray for everyone in this room. Our greatest need always is Christ. We think we need other stuff, and on a certain level, maybe we do need more of this and more of that. But at the bottom of it all, it's Christ, and we need more and more of him. Christ, to fill every, every longing, every desire of our hearts, capture our imagination, our desires, our longings. Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ above us, Christ within us. I pray that that would be true for all of us wherever we're at. Maybe we're just beginning a walk of faith. Our Father, would you give us a, a growing picture of Jesus? Maybe we've been walking with Christ for a long, long time. Give us, again, a growing picture of Jesus, that great line of the tribe of Judah who would capture our thoughts. Oh, Father, do this, do this for the glory of God in this church. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.